Richard, and welcome to Esoteric's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of May 6th, 2013. Join us as we sit down with historian Mark Chevalier to debunk myths about the Oviat building and its influence on the American Art Deco style. We'll also talk with Professor Don Johnson of Cal State LA's Criminalistics Department for a guided tour of his apprenticeships in mortuary and forensic science. So stay tuned. Los Angeles. El Pueblo. Lotus Land. The City of Angels. The Day of the Locust. The Slide Area. Where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear. But you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs in the mix. They add flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to Fifth and Main. As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway. Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city. Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules. Rainer Banham said that. He taught us well. In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation. Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir. Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown. The Real Black Dahlia. Positive public space, endangered landmarks, forgotten lore, memory maps, mysteries, murder, the allocation of resources, the hidden forces that shape public policy, Skid Row, Bunker Hill, preservation, restoration, redevelopment, it's a four-letter word, Los Angeles, you can't eat the sunshine, but you can drive around and take a long, hard look, and listen to the stories, and pass them on. Why are we doing this again? Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason. So did Rainer Banham. So he did. Now let's begin. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between Welcome, everyone, to our podcast for the week of May 6th, 2013. This week, we'll be talking with Marc Chevalier, who is the historian of the Oviat building, about the Oviat and its place in Art Deco design in Los Angeles. We'll also be talking with our dear friend, Professor Don Johnson, at the Criminalistics Department at Cal State Los Angeles. Don is the person that helps us run, well, he's the guy that makes happen. Are our crime labs, and and Kim, uh, do you uh, do you want to say hello to everyone and remind them about the Pishka? Yes, hello everyone, and my reminder for you this week is that if you like what we do, and we hope you do, you'll consider throwing a little something into our digital tip jar, a little bit of gas money, as we explore the Southern California landscape, looking for swell people to interview, not including people like Don Johnson because we can actually walk to interview him, but some people we drive for. So if you wanted to throw a little something in the tip jar, we'd sure appreciate it. And thank you. Kim, we have a lot of closely watched trains this week. So let's just, without stopping, get through them 
Kim. I know that John Raby on Off-Ramp has done a great job getting the word out about the giant tamale. And he even uh, got an interview from Gloria Molina, who is a supervisor in Los Angeles County. And she's talking about preservation ordinance that they want to they want to pass for unincorporated parts of the county long overdue and so exciting and it's just a, been a thrill i mean when, when we worked to save the 76 ball which we kind of sort of saved i mean they survived but they're now red instead of orange that was a year-long campaign um that was before twitter uh, social media has really transformed the uh, preservation activism landscape and it's so cool to see it it was actually six days from when we um posted the news that the Tamale, the last programmatic architectural structure on Whittier Boulevard on the east side of town, was up for sale at a teardown price. And uh, within six days, Gloria Molina was actually saying that she supported the preservation of the Tamale and that this ordinance was in the works. And it's just fantastic to see how quickly things can happen and how people can be mobilized to uh, you know, communicate with the people who run their communities and have the power to actually change policy. Policy and preservation go hand in hand. Yes, preservation is policy. And I think that's that's really, I think, what is the salient aspect of this preservation campaign for us. Because it's finally at this point that we just simply, out of the gate, say that. Yeah, contact your supervisor. She's the person who has the power to actually do something that makes a difference. That's neat. Kim... Lava visionary 20 of 2013, Dwayne Carlo Crum, is still at sea. What's happening with him? He, I, be, I believe he hit day 100 last week. He hit day 100, which he celebrated with, it's really very sweet, um, came out over his Tumblr feed, his Flickr feed, his sync to, a photo of his somewhat battered-looking, only slightly, um, <laughs> Lava Visionary of the Year award, which we gave him, which is this beautiful... Uh, glass paperweight in the image of an exploding volcano made in part from ash from Mount St. Helens. And he has taken that on the road with him. And I guess it's in his stateroom on his, on his cruise. So he took a picture of that. And uh, the latest I've seen over his feed, he's been visiting Egypt. And uh, he's been drinking tea with Bedouins. The tea looks great. It's strangely served out of plastic cups, but I guess that's the modern world. I, I don't want to talk about the plastic cups. I was very upset. When I saw that. Maybe those are the special recyclable plastic cups that break down. Maybe. Or just we're not Kim, there's there's no good starting point for Bedouins drinking tea out of plastic cups. Let's I just I, I just I yeah, know, I don't I, I don't want to think about that. We're okay. glad Dwayne's having so much fun. Kim. Good news from Pasadena. Uh, Caltrans finally allowed some buildings, some residential structures. This is the, 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 they included them in the Markham uh, residential district on the National Register. Now, this is a neighborhood in Pasadena that's just north of Orange Grove, above the freeway. This is an area where Caltrans bought up a lot of houses in the 1970s? 60s. Late, early, late 60s, right. And and they've been hesitant to put them on the register. We won't even want to get well, into Well, they bought it up because it's supposed to be the extension of the 710 freeway, which has been fought for years. And so some of these incredibly beautiful, important houses, including a green and green, um, in many cases, they're just laying fallow because people are renting them below market rate and uh, Caltrans hasn't really been keeping them up. Or when they do, they overpay for the work that gets done, and that's controversial. So listen, any kind of landmarking recognition for these structures is a really good step because they are in limbo. 
And and really, the the takeaway on this point is go walk around that neighborhood. It is it is gorgeous. Even it the is, sidewalks are special. It, it's just it's it's a it's a gorgeous neighborhood. There are some nineteenth century houses in that in that area that are just jaw droppingly beautiful. Whole block, just really. Please look into it. Uh, Kim uh, Irving Gill. Yeah, that fantastic bridge down in Torrance they've been working on. A railroad bridge. Gorgeous structure. Uh, they pulled all the ivy off, and I guess it has more cracks than they expected, so the, the restoration of that bridge is taking longer than planned, but hey, they found the money, they know that it's important, and they're trying to do it right for the long haul. Ir- Irving Gill, of course, was a really important modern architect who did a great deal of work for the city of Torrance in addition to building some residential workers' housing in Torrance. So Torrance is this great... Torrance and Santa Fe Springs are hot spots for Irving Gill. And, and I just noticed, Kim, as you were talking about Irving Gill, that Slats walked by and made a little meow. Yeah, that I was think, Slats. I think that he wanted to let everyone listening know that, that he did get his cone off. It was and, a month. And, and his, his, his doctor, our, our beloved veterinarian, uh, pronounced that his, his left rear pawpaw is better and he could get his cone off. So, so I know everyone was worried about from the announcement last week, but he's just fine. Yeah. Hopefully Slats won't contribute anymore because it's a little... Unnerving when he starts meowing, I guess. Kim, it looks like the abandoned lot at First and, and Broadway, on on First between Spring and Broadway, which used to house the 1931 State Building, which came down after the 71 Silmar Quake and has been an empty lot for Oh Well, 30- actually, it's got a beautiful footprint with some nice yeah. stone, which yeah. Nathan got up and got some looks at. Uh, yeah, the city wants to make a park of it, which seems a little odd to me to use the Quimby money for that because it's so close to the Grand Park. I would like to see that Quimby money applied to fixing Pershing Square. Not to say that that big vacant lot opposite City Hall isn't an eyesore. It is. But, you, you, but, you, know, you know what, Kim? The, the minute we have a, a um, Facebook group of, of 500 people that are focused on making sense of the Quimby me have the, the Quimp Commission meetings that deal with Quimby funds. <laughs> the for most parks boring and Facebook page in the world, you mean? Okay. Yes. It, once once we have five hundred people on that page, we can begin to delegate responsibilities <laughs> and start to make sense of of how and why Quimby funds are are delegated. But until that moment, it is beyond the scope of of a single couple. So even uh, us, yes. It is it is it is beyond the scope. Kim, my favorite building in Santa Monica. The Walker and Eisen basically guarantee building. The clock tower. The, exactly. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. It's been purchased. Purchased by an investment group that owns the Flatiron Building downtown. I guess they have a pretty good track record of securing historic properties. Are they the ones who have the Fine Arts Building now? Oh, I think, yeah, they are. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're cool because they look for preservation problems. Because I know the last time the, the clock tower building in Santa Monica was on my radar, it was because the owners were saying, we've owned this for years and we've never done anything to hurt it and we don't want any historic le- preservation ordinances applying to our building because we don't want anything standing in the way of our keeping it up for another 50 years. Well, yeah, right. Um, so now they've been bought out and amen to that by people who you know like to collect historic buildings. Kim, mm. um, I understand that your your grandmother's book is going to be for sale soon at the Rialto Theater on Broadway. <laughs> I 
don't know if that's the case. Urban Outfitters is the parent company of Anthropology, which took half of the copies of my grandmother's memoir, uh, which I wrote with her and my little sister, Chinta, Fall in Love for Life. And that was wonderful. And all the anthro girls love grandma's book. But I think that the Urban Outfitters crowd is, is a little hipper. Not to say that they don't have wedding presents to give away, too. So maybe maybe there will be there. But, yeah, it's interesting. More Broadway uh, commercial news. The old Rialto, which has been kind of a flea markety type. Well, it, it's it's been a retail establishment for, for years. And yeah. uh, 1917 opened as Quinn's Rialto. Quinn's? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, old, old theater. And um, Urban Outfitters wants to move in. They want to restore the marquee, hopefully with neon, and uh, turn it into a brand new retail space. So that's kind of interesting. Broadway is always on my mind. Kim, hmm. Union Station Master Plan is has there are four options out. I am just going to put on the table that we missed the meeting late last week. I this is on my list of things to ask forgiveness for. My trespasses to ask forgiveness for at Yom Kippur this year. I, I regret we missed it. Hopefully, they actually recorded the video and stored it somewhere this time. Last time they lost their video. This is a roundabout way of saying they're going to have three more meetings to discuss the three other options for Union Station. People should attend. It's a it's a rewarding experience. It is. Um, I've been reading some comments just on some of the blogs about uh, these ideas, and people seem kind of concerned that Metro doesn't actually have the money, that they're developing all of these ideas and they don't have the funding, and they're, they're, they're asking, why can't they just focus on transit? Why all this transformation of the space? These are these are valid questions, and I, I would ask why is Sheriff Baca asking to completely revamp the jails, which which may not even stay across the street from Union Station, if if some of the ideas go the way they're supposed to. So I think I think the county has some interesting schemes, but I also happen to know the county's broke. So so hap- happily, this this may save Union Station. Hope so, but. Also happily, um, first meeting we attended, they had all of these placards up that talked about the um, Harvey's restaurant, which of course never existed. Now in their documentation, they're talking about the famous Harvey house. So they have figured out that they have a Harvey house and they're looking for um, a vendor to move in and run it as a restaurant. So people are learning. As as we learn, Kim, I, uh, we, we all learn, and we just have to go forward and, and make the best of it. So get to a, a master plan meeting for Union Station. Drop us a line if you don't know how to do that. Kim? Maybe we'll see you there. Yes, yes, Kim. We've got just. I just want to touch on two upcoming events because they're near and dear to my heart. Yes. Um, we have a an annual event now. It's a lava event. It's a tour of the Savannah Cemetery in Rosemead, which is a very, very old Protestant cemetery that um, actually Dwayne Carlo Crum, our Lava Visionary of the Year, who's out on the road, but he is executive director of their well, nonprofit. He's mm-hmm. former executive. Oh, did he well, sit down for the well, year? Well, he's, he's basically out of town for a year, Kim, so I think It's he... a cemetery. It's been around for 150 years. I think he can go away for a year and he'll... Anyway wonderful free lava tour with docents who are deeply involved in the cemetery for docents very cool place come it's the um day of the year that they do all of the big memorial ceremonies there in the cemetery but we'll follow that with with some terrific tours and we may even have a bagpipe so uh you should definitely go to the lava site you'll see the link on this podcast page and reserve your spot and then kim 
Uh, we're back on schedule with Sunday, monthly Sunday lava salons for May. Our dear friend Scott is going to be giving an ex- exhibition and talk on his photographic project, 29 Palms, which is fantastic. It's really changed the way that I look at palm trees, and I think it will you too. That's uh, J. Scott Smith, photographer and lover of palms. Also, we're, we're gonna, uh, he's going to give a presentation on, on how he took the photographs, and I think he's going to bring one or I think he's going to bring down two full size prints and Which have are them, li- yeah, uh, have them on display and some smaller ones. It's going to be a fairly immersive, interactive event. So look at that. And then, of course, our dear friend Gordon Pattison is going to be giving a talk about growing up on Bunker Hill, which is a great topic, and uh, we're very excited about that. The Gordon's Gordon Lee's good for uh, good for, good to bring it on home for us. All right, Kim. Let's get into our interviews. So we have uh, first we have Professor Don Johnson, and Don is going to talk about his career, his apprenticeship with uh, his apprenticeship in mortuary and forensic science. These were respective apprenticeships that followed one after the other. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a great story. A very, very droll interview that I think you will enjoy. Not, not completely disgusting and morbid, but you can definitely use your imagination and be blown away by Don's sensibility, which is really something. And, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up with our interview with Mark Chevalier. Mark is, of course, the historian at the Oviat. Mark, you know, has a rotating exhibit in the windows, in the lob, in the outdoor lobby of the Oviat, that people should definitely keep up on. They're they're very interesting. Mark is going to talk to us about. He's going to answer the question: Is the Oviat building Art Deco? And why or why not? So so let's get started with our interview with Don, and then we'll segue into Mark, and we'll take it away. Dawn, I want to welcome you back to the podcast. This is another one of our continuing series with you. We're here uh, at the Crime Lab at Cal State Los Angeles in, in your office. Dawn, you're going you're gonna to tell us about the master embalmer you studied under while you were getting a degree here at Cal State LA. So why don't you, just to bring us up to speed, introduce yourself and and jump in and tell us about your apprenticeship under the master and Balmer. Yes, certainly. Uh, I'm, yes, Don Johnson, uh, professor of criminalistics here at the uh, School of Criminal Justice and Criminalistics at Cal State LA. And I actually uh, uh, developed an interest in the, the mortuary practice as a child. And, um, in fact, I earned my first dollar at a funeral home in Ohio. I was 12 years old. And uh, when um, I called the funeral home saying that I was interested in pursuing this, you know, this work, and is there any kind of work there for me? And, uh, and so they called my mother. I left you know, them with my phone number. They called my mother and said, you know, is, is he serious about this? And she said yes. And they said, well, we do have uh, something for him to do. And so I got very excited. I I brought my dissecting kit. I thought I was going to embalm. <laughs> so I was, and I was very disappointed when it was just picking up cigarette butts in the lot. 
their their parking lot. That's that's the the job. But nevertheless, um, I still have that dollar. And uh, but uh, I learned later that my interest was more in uh, well uh, biology, anatomy, p- uh, pathology. But I did uh, eventually earn my license here in California as an embalmer. And uh, I actually used that to, to work my way through school, through college. And one advantage uh, of um, uh, pursuing the license was that, uh, well, a, a funeral home, a mortuary, uh, needs to be, of course, manned 24 hours, 24-7. So many mortuaries would provide their apprentices with an apartment or a house for, uh, free of free of charge. So... I, uh, being that I was out on my own, uh, that was of, of great advantage. So I actually lived at the mortuary. Yes. And then I, uh, I had to, um, there are, of course, state uh, requirements. There's a board that governs the operations of uh, funeral directors and embalmers. And there are specific you know, requirements to, to earn a license. And so I actually served under a master embalmer. Uh, at the at the mortuary, and he was uh, well. He he was an artist. I must say, uh, he was uh, a very interesting person. And the first thing he told me, he says, "I'm going to teach you things that you can't learn in a book," and he sure did. <laughs> yes, he. But he was very uh, very gifted, and I never, of course, matched him in 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 skill. I learned a great deal from him, but he had a. There's just a this. Um, Yes, uh, an artistic sensibility he had, I guess, and the skill. He had an artist's skill, yes. So where did you, where, where did he take you? So you, you, you started to learn how to embalm, and, and, and where did you get to with him that you just, what, what, was, the un, what was the unimaginable journey that he took you on in, in terms of, of embalming a corpse? Uh, well, it, um, let's see. Well, first there was, uh, uh, you know, di- dissection that, that I was uh, familiar with. But it was um, more in, uh, well, it, it, more in theory, I guess. You know, so it was, um, uh, what he showed me was, um, um well, the tricks of the trade, if you will, and say in disguising incisions and hiding incisions and such. Uh, but I recall what impressed me was one case where this uh, this man, Porcel, uh, was killed in a, a horrific automobile accident, and he was uh, terribly disfigured, you know, as a result, massive trauma. But the family wanted to view his remains. And I just thought that was impossible. I just couldn't imagine how someone could reconstruct this person's face, given this tremendous trauma. But uh, my master embalmer did just that. And now it took many, many days of work. Uh, but it, it was an incredible, you know, transformation. And but just to see the uh, uh, yes, the um, the skill of this man. Yes, it was it was quite remarkable, and it was based on uh, you know photographs that they had, the family had, and the family was just very uh, very appreciative, uh, you know, of, of this. 
and uh, being able to see him as far as you know uh, closure for them in, in terms of this this sudden death. But that's what was I just uh, what impressed me very much was uh, uh, the artistic skill that he had. Yes. So, Don, you you went on to take your degree here at Cal State Los Angeles, and and then you you went on, you became a, a forensics investigator for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, which you did for for several decades. Um, how did how did your training as an embalmer help you to be the first responder for a forensic investigation team to a crime scene? It, it certainly. Uh it was of great benefit in that I was already, you know, well familiar with seeing dead bodies, and where uh, um, that is a problem for some criminals that is, you know, entering uh, well from college, you know, without this experience, is uh, they're seeing a dead body for the first time, but also, you know, it's a, a dead body at some, you know, a terrible crime crime scene, uh, so. Um, uh, but I, so I was, uh, you know, well, well prepared for that. Um, but I also, too, you know, a knowledge concerning, uh, well, coroner's investigations, that certainly was helpful, uh, because sometimes our paths would cross in the, with the mortuary practice. I think it was largely just having a, being, uh, uh, you know, familiar with, uh, well, with the dead, of course, the sight of decomposing bodies, the smell and such. Um, I've been fortunate that I, I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, upset by, by that. Uh, again, because it was just, you know, dating back, you know, from childhood where I was, you know, dissecting dead animals and such, just curious of how things work. Uh, so I, um, Yes, so this it, it sort of yes, it has evolved. This is my interest, yeah. So, Don, we we cannot do a, a podcast with you without you talking about some object in your in your office. I think last time we talked about the the penis bone, which I think sort of set a really high bar. So <laughs> uh, maybe. I, I I don't want, but uh, why don't why don't you pick pick an object and let's and let's talk about it. Uh, all right. Well, let's see. Uh, this uh, the snake skin here might might be of interest. Uh, this actually was. Uh, you, you have to describe it because pe- we, we <laughs> this is a podcast. So sure, it's a snake skin, just approximate length, approximate size. So it's um, what about. What would you say, six feet long, and it's yes, a dried uh, snake skin. It's a uh, you know, shades of brown and black. It's actually from a uh, uh, a python and someone's uh, pet, a colleague of mine. And the actually, what happened? The uh, the animal suddenly died, and this was while I was at the coroner's office working there as a student professional worker, and. Uh, um, she brought the animal in, and so I did a necropsy on the animal there at the coroner's office. Come to find that uh, the the snake's last meal, a rat, uh, it had. She told me that it had regurgitated the rat, um, but without the head. And uh, what I found was that the incisors of the rat had actually perforated the 
intestines. And, and, the, and the bowel was actually knotted around the head of volvulus. And that was the, yes, that was the cause of, cause of death. So I skinned the animal. Well, I have the organs, too, down the hall. And uh, they're very curious snake organs because they're, well, they're just, well, they're designed for a tubular way of living. <laughs> they're all very long and cylind- cylindrical in shape and such as you would expect. But, yeah, really interesting. And so um, I've just, uh, I've kept this uh, ever since. This is probably, you know, 30 years old in better condition than I am, yes, so it, uh, a little formalin formaldehyde yeah, can work wonders. And, and so, yeah, do you quickly want to just, as, as we wrap up this object, how, what you did to preserve it? Because it looks really good. I wouldn't know it was 30 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this simply was just um, when I removed the skin, I just had pinned it flat and let it air dry. And that was, I think I did treat it a little bit with uh, formalin. There was still some, I think, some muscle uh, attached in parts. But yes, it's just simply, uh, yes, air-dried. And um, yes, it, uh, the, the color, it has, it's discolored a bit. Um, but um, yes, the organs are in uh, formalin or formaldehyde. And I, one thing I remember, uh, you know, uh, the, um, I was uh, removing the skin around the mouth, and my finger actually accidentally slipped into its mouth, and the, the, <laughs> the fangs, the teeth were are recurved, you know, they're curved inward, so uh, I couldn't pull my finger out. It's like one of the, what do you call that, Chinese finger yeah. thing? Yes, that just, <laughs> it was very painful. And... Uh, so, at uh, any rate, I eventually got it out. But um, um, there, there you have it. That's a, that's a great story. We, we, we only expect great stories from you, Don. Don, I want to thank you for another installment. And I, I'm looking at your office. I'm just, I'm, excuse the pun, I'm dying to know what we're going to talk about, what, what, what totem object we're going to pick next time. So... I want to thank you, and, and we'll see you soon. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to it. Mark, I want to welcome you back. We are back in the Oviat building, one of my favorite places in Los Angeles. Olive Street, just, uh, just off 6th. Mark, we are here today in the Oviat for you to answer the fundamental question of uh, 1920s Los Angeles design. Is the Oviat building Art Deco? And before you answer that, I want you to introduce yourself to people that might not have caught our last podcast with you on this wonderful building. I'm Mark Chevalier, and we are once again inside the Oviet building in downtown Los Angeles, and you are listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. That, that's, thank you. That's a wonderful station ID. So, so Mark, the, 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 burning, the burning question, Mark, is the Oviet building Art Deco? That's the burning question, and it's tied to another question. Is the Oviat building the first Art Deco building in Los Angeles? You will hear many tour guides and tour books say yes, 
and it's there in their best interest for them to say so. It makes it makes the place a, quite a stop to see. Well, in fact, it is the first skyscraper in Los Angeles that has Art Deco elements prominently in it. Does that make it an Art Deco building? Not if you think that it would have to have more than 50% of a, a Deco design to it, no. But James Oviatt was a smart guy when he started building, when he had this building first designed by his architects Walker and Eisen in 1923, it was going to look Italian Renaissance. And that's because most of the skyscrapers being built in Los Angeles at that time looked like they were Italian Renaissance. Their facades were Italian Renaissance in design. It took a few more years to actually get the building underway. By the time it got started in uh, 1927, Walker Nyson and, and Oviatt had changed the design considerably. The facade was now Italian Romanesque, a few centuries earlier than Renaissance. That's because of Walker and Eisen, I think. Uh, in the intervening years, between 23 and 27, they had really discovered the, the joys of terracotta. And uh, terracotta lent itself very well to Romanesque design. Uh, all the filigrees and the very deep relief, it just, uh, it just looked great with terracotta. So the Oviatt building uh, began to look that way uh, outside, and in fact it was ultimately built to be uh, Italian Romanesque outside. With one exception, the ground floor, we'll talk about that. Inside, however, it was a little bit different story. The uh, ground floor store, which is now Cicada Restaurant, everybody, the most beautiful uh, indoor space uh, below the penthouse, was intended to be uh, English Jacobean. In other words, 17th century, heavy woods, oak, lots of carvings, uh, man, very manly hunt club sort of style. Uh, lots of men's clothing stores looked like that back in the t early 20s. James Oviatt's previous clothing store location on 6th and Hill actually looked that way inside. And Oviatt's plan was to take a lot of the furnishings from that store and rip them out from there and bring them, put them into the Oviatt building uh, new store space. Save money that way. Well, things changed when Oviatt went to Europe in the summer of 1927 on a buying trip, popped into Paris, and that's really where he discovered Art Deco. And he went gaga for it and went to, contacted his uh, interior architects and said, we've got to change things here. This is the new. How can we incorporate Art Deco into our Jacobean designs? They found very clever ways of doing it. If you go to the Cicada restaurant space today, you'll see uh, the English men's club mixed in with uh, the sharp, angular, cubist Art Deco. And then Oviatt decided to make his penthouse on the top floor completely Deco. It is a very pure example of early French Art Deco, somehow plopped right into Los Angeles. Must have been quite a shock for non-Europeans to see uh, when he moved in there in the summer of 1928. Fantastic, Park. We've, so we've, we, uh, I, I want to 
may, I want to dig a little deeper into this this trip. So it sounds like 27, he's engaged one of the most prominent architecture firms in Los Angeles, Walker and Eisen. Can't touch him. Well, maybe Morgan and Walls. You can close. But giant firm uh, doing really fundamental design. Lands in Paris, sends for his interior architect. You mentioned this interior architect. His name was Joseph Field. Joseph Field. Let's, let's backtrack. Tell us a little history of Joseph Field's work in Los Angeles and, and how, and, and then his going to Paris with Oviat and them bringing uh, Art Deco Paris back into the, this lobby, which sat on, the, on Olive Street at 6th. Joseph Field started working in uh, store design in 1913 here in Los Angeles. 1914, he got his first big break along with Ernst Batchelder. So they had the same break. Uh, they were both able to design for the chocolate shop stores, as you mentioned. And from there, the sky was the limit. Uh, Joseph Field went on to uh, design the interiors for stores not only in Los Angeles, but all over the country. And in the early 1920s, he redesigned James Oviet's store interior. And when Oviet was at the Sixth and Hill location, and so he was the natural choice for Oviet to hire to design his brand new store at the uh, the upcoming Oviet building. In the summer of 1927, Joseph Feel here in L.A. received a cable from James Oviet in Paris saying, Joe, come to Paris right now. I need you to see this great new style that you're going to have to use for my new store. Oh, okay. Joseph Field sails to Paris. And there he's introduced to Art Moderne, or Art Deco. The problem is that Joseph Field doesn't know a thing about Art Deco. He wasn't trained in it. So he says to Mr. Oviet, Well, you're going to have to give me a lot of money so I can buy a lot of art and design books and uh, educate myself about Art Deco. Okay. He got the money, he bought the books, he trained himself, and he went back to Los Angeles to create the Oviet Penthouse, the Art Deco masterpiece that it is, and the hybrid Art Deco uh, Alexander Noviet store space. We, uh, we cannot have you talk about the design of the Oviat building without talking about its lobby. What what's still there, what was there, and uh, the work that was done in Paris and the direction Mr. Oviat received. So what I'd really like to do is I'd like you to, to describe this gorgeous exterior lobby of the Oviat, which is so wonderfully described in the opening passages of Raymond Chandler's novel, Leggy in the Lake. I want you to describe this beautiful space as, as you first remember it yourself. Yeah, what a space it was. I can only, I never actually saw it in person as it was. I saw it when it had been uh, dismantled. And now it's been reconstructed, but we'll never reach the glory of, of its original state. The ground floor of the Ovid building, the outdoor entrance, was originally going to have a simple canvas canopy, a striped canopy like you see on so many stores. And then James Oviet in the summer of 27 saw a French department store with a beautiful, beautiful glass canopy, as it were. 
and it was amazing. And he contracted the two people who designed it to do something for him. What it was was about 12 tons of glass panels, all etched, all sand etched with Art Deco designs, all pieced together with metal girders. And uh, not only that, but they were created in the stalactite form. In other words, the glass formed triangles and uh, pyramids that would go up and down from the ceiling, uh, hanging above you. Uh, the the whole ceiling was lighted from inside by thousands of bulbs, and there were about six uh, color wheels, revolving color wheels, with uh, uh, which would cre- change the coloring of the lighted glass from red to blue to green, and then back to red again at, at night. Uh, it's really difficult to describe if you could only see it. You would immediately be, I think, amazed. Uh, as uh, people walking down the street were, uh, they had to go into the store after seeing this incredible outdoor lobby and uh, overhang canopy of glass. And so when when you saw it dismantled, who was the one to dismantle this, this beautiful creation? I saw I saw the outdoor entrance to the Ovid building for the first time in 1975. All that glass that I just described had been taken out of it uh, seven years before. It was taken out after James Oviet's business had closed in 1966. Oviet still owned the building, and he dis- he felt that the outdoor lobby area in the front needed to be modernized to attract uh, uh, new tenants. And so he uh, found a, a young photographer friend and said, uh, if you will take out this glass uh, for me and cart it away, uh, you can have all of it for $50. Mind you, it had cost James Oviet probably about $20,000 to have the thing made, transported, and installed in 1928. But now he's going to sell it for $50. And, well, he get, got rid of it in the process. And so the young photographer and a couple of friends actually did remove all the glass in a couple of days and, and practically broke their backs doing it. Uh, one of the couples who did remove the glass kept half of it, and the other couple who removed the glass sold it off piecemeal. Uh, today, the half of the glass ceiling is owned by the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. They are restoring it, and in a few years, they'll, they will display some of it. Uh, the other half, in pieces here and there, uh, now belongs in movie stars' homes. Uh, I think Barbara Streisand has some of it in her bathroom in Malibu. And the rest occasionally appears in auctions here and there. I want to stop following the trail of James Oviatt and his bad decisions late in life for our next episode because that's really you're gonna, you're gonna, we're going to have a whole episode devoted to his downfall, demise, dementia bad decisions just end of life I want to uh, we're, we're on the set we're, we're debunking myths about the Oviatt building and, and I want to wrap this up by you debunking uh, the, what I what I believe to be one of the more prominent myths about this building, 
And that myth is, Lalique designed all the glass in the Oviat building. Could you please tell me about Mr. Lalique and his wonderful work? Yeah, again, that's that's a really big myth. Uh, it's big because the claims for many years have been that this uh, the Oviat building was the largest commission that René Lalique ever received, and that this building had the largest amount of Lalique glass, uh, architectural glass, in one place ever. Uh, it's not true at all. It was uh, it was an embellishment that a reporter put into a 1977. I'm sorry, 1981 magazine story. And uh, since it was so little uh, on the Oviat building that you could find information about, it, it, people would just steal from this little story and the lie grew and grew and grew, or it was, it was uh, perpetuated. Lalique did design some fantastic things for this building, and some of those are lost. He designed the largest wall clock he ever made. In 27, Lalique had made a wall clock uh, for a, uh, I think it was a mutual aid society in France. And James Oviatt saw the design and said, I want one like that for me, but bigger. And Lalique came through. Well, that wall clock, which used to be inside the store space of the building, is long gone, sold off in 1968 and disappeared. La Ligue also designed a very large chandelier uh, to show at an exposition in 27. Oviet saw that and said, I want three. So La Ligue made three. The problem is that the, the middle of the three was the largest, and La Ligue liked it so much, he said, I actually want this for my own home. And he didn't deliver it to Oviet. Noviet said, where's my big chandelier? And Lalique said, well, I really liked it. I want it for my own home. I put it in there. I'll make another one for you very quickly. Well, by the time the store opened, only two chandeliers had arrived, and the third one hadn't come in yet. So we had a ridiculous-looking ceiling arrangement in the Oviet store with two big chandeliers, and then the center had just one tiny little light bulb from the ceiling where the big chandelier is supposed to be. Uh, the greatest, oh, Oviet does, I'm sorry, Lalique also designed the front doors uh, for the building. Odd because they're cut glass, not your typical frosted molded glass that you associate with Lalique. And Lalique's greatest contribution to the building were a pair of very, very large glass panels for side doors. Uh, the panels are seven and a half feet tall, each panel. And they depicted uh, angels uh, side by side holding a California mission bell. The angels represented the city of the angels, Los Angeles, and the bell, of course, the mission history. Uh, this was the uh, logo for the Oviet building, in fact. And uh, René Lalique designed it also in a perfume bottle, uh, whose, which was sold uh, at the Oviet store. Those wonderful glass panels with the angels, the angel doors, were sold off in 1968, and they ended up at the Utah University Art, Mu Art Museum, where they languish in crates in its basement, never to see the light of day again. Well, but, but Mark, who made the panels, these beautiful panels that I see? Who made those? I thought Lalique did. You mean who made those ceiling glass panels outdoors, the ones we were talking about earlier that were all lighted up? 
those were made by a fantastic French architect named Ferdinand Chanu. If you've ever been to Paris and you've seen the Galerie Lafayette department store there, there's a fantastic, enormous cupola dome uh, made of thousands and thousands of panes of uh, colored glass. And that dome was designed by Chanu in 1912. Now, Chanu stuck around and continued to design for stores, and in 1927, he was asked by the same department store, the Galerie Lafayette, to design an outdoor uh, lobby and, and cupola, or, or rather overhang, in glass. It was this beautiful glass uh, overhang you know, he designed that James Oviet saw in the summer of 27. And that's why Oviet hired Chanu and the glassmaker to do the same thing for his new building. Who is the glassmaker? Another fellow who's been forgotten but was famous his time. His name was Gatin Jeanin. He was a uh, glass designer who specialized in sand-etched glass. He used sand, shot very in high, very uh, rather uh, quickly from a gun, uh, onto glass that had been painted with acid. And uh, that's how he got his designs. Chanu did all kinds of sand etching all over Europe, all over the world, was very famous and promoted his art. And then he died from it, basically. In the early 30s, he started to get uh, sick in his lungs from all that dust, that glass dust that he'd been uh, sandblasting everywhere. And by 1935, he was dead. That's a very sad story. It's a beautiful glass. Uh, I want you to tell us where we can look to actually see an original piece of this glass tile. Because, of course, it was all carted away, as, as you described about five minutes ago. Well, not all of it was carted away. Uh, you can still see a few panels of it at the Oviet building itself. If you go to the front of the building and you move into the, what, they, what they call the outdoor lobby towards the front doors, uh, you'll see four columns around you. And at the tops of the columns, you'll see glass panels, not ceiling panels, because the ceiling panels that are in, the, in there now are copies from the 1970s, and they're, they're not so great. Uh, I'm talking about uh, panels at the tops of the columns, the capitals. Those are original. Those give you a taste of what, uh, what the whole ceiling once looked like. Fantastic, Mark. You've done a wonderful job debunking myths and setting the record straight, which is what, it's what we're here to do. So I want to thank you for another wonderful episode, and I look forward to our next, in which we're gonna we're gonna roll up our sleeves and we're gonna we're gonna talk about the dark side of James Oviat. Are, are are you ready? Oh, I'm scared. No, I'm ready. <laughs> Mark, thank you for your time, and and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Hey, it's the ukulele. You're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. And we're done. I want to thank everyone for listening yet again to our podcast for the week of May 6th, 2013. This week, our guests were Marc Chevalier, Oviat historian. He joined us to debunk myths about the Oviat building on, on a number of fronts, Art Deco being the the initial foray into that into that forest where we slew some dragons. And when he joins us again 
in the future we are going to forge into new territory, talking about my favorite Raymond Chandler villain, James Oviatt himself. We also talked with Professor Donald Johnson about his apprenticeship at a mortuary and his apprenticeship in both the uh, forensic in, in criminal in forensic investigation in the, the, at the coroner's office and in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. So really, really nice little stories about rites of passage and tricks for embalming and dissolving flesh on skin. So, so Kim, if people want to uh, touch base, reach out to us, give us some feedback. We, of course, want to hear from them. How can they do that? Well, one way they can do that is to go to our iTunes page and leave a review for the podcast, which helps more people find it. You can also, if you want to reach out to us directly, send an email through our contact link on esoteric.com, or you can simply email youcantetthesunshine at gmail.com, and we'll get that, too. People can people review podcasts on iTunes? Oh, heck yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I don't think most of our listeners do, too. We have one nice review. Okay. Let's let's work on that. All right, Kim, let's just walk through May and June bus tours. Yeah. yeah. Well, not a lot of bus tours in May, only two, uh, including on the 18th, the Raymond Chandler tour of Hollywood and downtown Los Angeles. We also, going into June, have a series of four of our crime bus tours. June 1 is Eastside Babylon, perhaps my most unhinged crime bus adventure. June 8th is Pasadena Confidential, the only crime bus tour that includes a long visit, which is to say he gets on the bus and doesn't leave, with Crimebo the Clown, a truly unique and charming character. On June 15th, we'll be offering Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice, which is a tour of lost and sometimes deadly downtown L.A. And on June 22nd, another neighborhood crime bus tour, Weird West Adams, a combination of true crime and uh, neighborhood development, including the rise and fall of the um, exclusion laws that kept people of various races from buying homes in Southern California and eventually was brought down by the Supreme Court. Uh, yeah, housing covenants. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Kim, that that weird West Adams crime tour of yours. That's a neat tour. That's um, the Hickman case is on that, isn't it? Yeah, we're um, I I decided that the tour had gotten a little bit away from the blood and the guts because we were bringing in all of this really interesting housing law history, which which is fantastic and I love and and, and I really appreciate you bringing that in and also the various neighborhood. Uh, pocket histories. So we're bringing back one of my favorite crimes, which hasn't been on the bus for a while, which is the completely unhinged and terrifying kidnapping of Marion Parker by a schizophrenic uh, who called himself the Fox. I believe he's schizophrenic. Not everyone does. Uh, Kidnapper and uh, fiend. Did he do it? Uh, Yeah, I think, well, Actually, yeah, I don't know if he did it. I've heard, I've heard a very interesting new theory. New evidence is always coming up. So we, we will talk about that perhaps on the bus. But whether he did it or not, the fact remains, poor little Marion Parker did not come home in one piece. She came home in many pieces, um, many of which were scattered over Elysian Park. And her poor father was returned uh, what he thought was his daughter with her eyes sewn open, sitting in a dark car, and he paid the ransom and received... Just this little package that was part of his kid. Horrifying stuff. And and Ayn Rand was kind of obsessed with it. Yeah, when Ayn Rand came to the United States, um, 
I guess part of the way she learned English. I don't know if she knew English in Russia, but she, she, she a little. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she was an educated person, but she she really immersed herself in the tabloid press and found um, the utterings from the Fox uh, Edward Hickman to be fascinating. Uh, she she said that his statement, I am like the state, what's good for me is right, was like this um, Superman statement that she found extremely interesting. She ended up writing about him early in her career. And this is something that went, you know, pretty much unknown except by hardcore Rand scholars until um, somebody who was an anti-libertarian writer found out about it and started pushing the notion that Ayn Rand was like a serial killer groupie. So you'll find that out on the internet if you go looking for it. Well, good. So I, I look forward to all of this. It's great tour. So I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to encourage you to keep on listening, and I want to remind you... You can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La, 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long-lost neighborhood called Herman uh, between uh, South Pass and Highland Park, Grand Central Park. It is divine. You can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine.